This episode of MBSing is sponsored by Cards Against Humanity. They asked me not to read an ad, so I'm just going to thank them for their constant friendship and support. Enjoy the show. I do my head toss, check my nails. Baby, how you feeling? Hello, welcome to MBSing. I'm your host, Mary Beth Smith. My guest today is Clint Worthington, and he talks to me about his love of film criticism. Clint himself is a film critic, but he also just loves reading reviews, watching films, having a conversation with other critics and other watchers of films to be able to unpack this medium that he loves so much and that I love. So it was a great joy for me to be able to unpack with him for a while. The conversation varies anywhere from the Criterion Collection to Clint's considering himself a Michael Bay apologist to our thoughts on Rotten Tomatoes to needing more diversity in not just film, but also in film criticism, something that I wouldn't have necessarily considered before this conversation. Uh, Clint is the host of a fellow Chicago podcast co-op show called Alka Hollywood, wherein he and his co-host Jared make a drink that's themed around whatever film they are watching for that episode. They create a drinking game. They typically bring in a guest to do it all with them. They unpack the movie. They talk about some of their favorite aspects and uh, what the drinking game entails for the movie watching. They also have a little bit of a spinoff show called On Tap, where Uh, They do some more straight reviews, talk about some things that they've seen at festivals, etc. Clint also does some film reviewing for Consequence of Sound, a great website that I recently read a 10-year retrospective oral history piece on my personal favorite film once and found out some new info. I mean... How great is that when you love something so much and you already feel like you know a lot about it? And then this great website does a piece on it and you find out stuff that you never knew before. That was really cool for me. So shout out to Consequence of Sound. If you would like to see not a film, but a live improv show, you can come to the Annoyance Theater any Thursday night at 9.30 to see The Fishbowl. I host that show with my improv group, Sight Unseen. We close out the night, but in the middle of the night, you can see some Annoyance students and other students of improv get the opportunity to play with some Annoyance veterans and teachers and regular performers. And it's a really fun mix of experience and personalities and characters. And if you are a student of improv in particular, I would encourage you to come throw your ID into the fishbowl and try to get up on stage with some wonderful players. Another annoyance show that is coming back for a second run that I am a company member of is called Sad Clown. It's the first four Friday nights at 8 o'clock in September. You can see that in the big stage at The Annoyance, and I'm really happy about that because it's been getting great turnout. It's a wonderful show. 
Basically, the concept is that the company members uh, listen to an essayist who has written a piece about their own struggles or the struggles of someone very close to them dealing with mental illness of some kind, depression, anxiety, suicide, uh, bipolar disorders, all kinds of things have been discussed thus far. And then the improvisers are tasked with doing improv based on the essay that everyone just listened to. So it's not necessarily an easy transition or topic or thing to do, but I think the biggest takeaway from the show is that when talking about mental illness and having conversations with people uh, who struggle with mental illness, we have to treat it just like we treat anything else in that we are able to laugh at it. We are able to make mistakes and be corrected and move on and be together and mostly just shine a light on the fact that everyone has, you know, something that they're going through, uh, some more than others. And it's an incredible way to kind of unpack thought processes and things of that nature surrounding mental health. So I'd strongly encourage you checking out that show as well. That's the first four Friday nights in September at eight o'clock at the Annoyance Theater. I think those are the only plugs I've got. With no further ado, enjoy the show. My guest today is fellow podcaster Clint Worthington. Hello, people. Yes, and we're going to do some navel-gazing for a little (laughs) bit, I guess, and have a conversation about film criticism. Yeah, that's sort of my thing. That's the thing I want to get paid to do sometime. Sure. Soon. Hopefully. I need money. Please help. (laughs) I understand that. To a T. What would you say is the origin of your love for and interest in film criticism? Ooh, that's a good question. Well, because first of all, the genesis of me coming on the podcast was we both just did a Your Stories with Nerdalogs. Right. That was uh, movie-themed, which got me thinking about when I started talking about movies. Because um, just to preface, I run uh, another CPC podcast, Alcoholywood, which is a film criticism podcast. Also sure. blended a little bit with mixology and uh, drinking games and stuff. We make a drinking game for a movie every week, et cetera, et cetera. And we have a new releases spinoff called On Tap, which you can find at alcoholywoodontap.libsyn.com. That's like my way of uh, cashing in on the press screenings I get to do now yeah, that I'm a film critic. That's um, awesome. Yeah, yeah, which I'll get into that, I guess, in a second. But I was always a huge fan of movies. I was much, much more of like a sci-fi guy specifically. Like when I was young, the very first movie my parents took me to, I wasn't even one was Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, a.k.a. The One with the Whales. Uh, going back through my old baby diaries, I remember seeing, like, they noted they noted this trip and were like, oh, he was, he was so quiet through the whole thing. I was, apparently I was enraptured, and I fully credit that with, like, my love of Star Trek and that kind of stuff. So I was, already, I was always fully immersed in media. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, I grew up in a very small part of central Illinois, the, the mm-hmm. like south of I-80, so like not fans of Chicago, et cetera, et cetera. I was an only child growing up on a farm, uh, decidedly not the farm boy type. I was, uh, <laughs> I mean, I was probably Luke Skywalker just gazing out. <laughs> wanting, I just wanted to go to Tashi Station to pick up some power, power converters, converters yes. um, but I really just wanted to mess around with my friends. <laughs> so movies kind of were my escape, I guess, or just my way of filling the time. I just had like a cat and my, you know, my mom worked at the hospital. My dad farmed all day. So I was more or less left to my own devices. And that's when I started, you know, I read a lot. I watched a lot of movies and stuff. And uh, 
I think one big thing in terms of criticism probably is the same thing a lot of white guys my age would say, which is Mystery <laughs> Science Theater 3000. And, yeah. I mean, that's it's it's true. I can't I can't I've hide from it. I talked to my friend Warren about Mystery Science Theater 3000 for MBSing. Before yeah, I, yeah. And it was a good I time. I mean, it was a big, it was a really influential show. And weirdly enough, like those last three seasons where they went to the sci-fi channel, that was when I saw it because a few, for a few years, my parents had uh, pirated satellite. Oh, so, uh, that makes so much sense though to have a lot more film access too. Right, because not only did I get access to all those channels and stuff so I would watch uh, Mystery Science Theater I would watch uh, IFC a lot so I would get more exposure to the kinds of movies that kids my age normally wouldn't see yeah that's you're talking about really good programming yeah in in cases like that in my opinion but the best part about the pirated satellite was that I had access to all of the pay-per-view movies Mm -hmm. for free Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. uh we had a VCR, and I abused that motherfucker. <laughs> um, I That's awesome. just, yeah, I, I have like tapes. I, I would do like the six-hour-long play ones because you know you right. could like, oh, have it in higher quality for two hours or lower quality for six, and, and you I would can do get the like three movies on there, right? And I would label them. But, but we had a few like that. But because of that, I mean, because of the time period in which I had that, it was all like the best of 1997 to 1999, <laughs> basically. Uh, so, it, like, uh, if you were to dredge through my old VHS closet back home, it would probably have like a VCR with something like Good Burger, <laughs> Star Kid, uh, The Mummy, and. That's sort of how I ended up yeah. absorbing those things, and um, that's really funny. Right. Notice that, like, it's not. There were great movies from like ninety five to ninety seven ish, sure, but yeah. the late nineties were like a we, boon in the industry. It was a special time. Well, because the eighties and nineties that was the height of home video, so you knew you could just like put out any old Anything, crap you wanted, yeah. and as long as it made a few bucks at Walmart, it doesn't matter. And that's another thing to think about, too. A lot of people complain now that, oh, movies aren't as good as they used to be. Like, we we think about all the classics that came out yeah. in the, the early days of the film. Saturday Night Live syndrome. Right, exactly. Because <laughs> well, we only remember the good movies. Like, those are the movies that stand the test of time. No one yeah. talks about the crappy movies from the 40s and exactly. 50s. It's We just, the, the star kids of the 1950s, <laughs> like, there's a reason. Yeah. And it, we just happen to be living in the time where people are shoving new content in our faces. And if we don't like it, we think about, oh, all movies are terrible now. Right, yeah. Um, I, I, I strongly believe that the same thing exists with Saturday Night Live casts. Oh, like your yeah. favorite one is the one that you watched when you were in like high school and maybe college. Right. But you don't remember any of the bad sketches. You just remember quoting the funniest sketches, which yeah. is like the same way that it works now. There are right. episodes that have three or four great sketches in them and if you watch a whole episode from start to finish you're like oof some real stinkers in there yeah, it's like, like for some duh. people Cicely Strong is going to be their favorite uh, it's never going to be like the Cicely Strong days of Saturday Night Live right. you know yeah. like it's, that's something we have to keep in mind is it that, will be for some generation just not ours right yeah. exactly and I guess that's that's sort of something I try to keep in mind when I do film criticism without refraining from being honest in my own opinion. Sure. Um, Do you feel like there were times when you were growing up and watching movies like that, did you get into reading reviews and following critics? uh, I think so. Uh, One of the biggest things was, I mean, I was, I think I'm part of the last generation that grew up, at least in the early parts of the early years of their lives without the internet. Mm, um, but yes, when I, I was about 13 or 14, we got the big desktop computer with a dial-up modem. Yeah. And uh, I used that. I mean, I, 
I was also a huge anime fan in my <laughs> teens. I have gr- since grown out of it. But thank God. But uh, do not look up pictures of what I looked like in high school. I dressed atrociously. Um, you were like open button downs oh, with open, graphics on. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. And like yeah. cargo pants because I was somehow like really, really averse to jeans. <laughs> mostly because it, it was my weird form of rebelling against my mom because she was always trying to get me to wear jeans. I'm like, no, mom, I'm not gonna wear jeans. Uh, before I came to my senses and realized, oh, I look like a piece of shit. <laughs> but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I I prided myself when I was a teen on the IMDb being my homepage mm, uh, for my Internet exactly Explorer right. slash Netscape Navigator, what have you. <laughs> but and so that's where I would pick up all this trivia of of movies and um, you know cast lists, like uh, even. In my late teens, I would start to become this repository for like, oh, that guy was in this movie with this other guy. Yeah. The very, like Six like Degrees six of Kevin degrees. Bacon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would start to pick up that kind of stuff. But in terms of criticism, um, I would say Roger Ebert, just like everybody else, was right. one, one of my main things. I mean, I grew up also watching at the movies with Siskel and Ebert. So that was another thing. I got to see these two people in a movie theater looking at clips of Independence Day and then talking about how atrocious it was. Right. And, and be like, oh, this is what, and they're talking about why they don't like these things. And then um, uh, the real big thing was, um, like I mentioned in the Your Stories thing that, uh, that we did together, mm-hmm. my, I wanted to be a filmmaker when I was a teenager. So I would right. make these short films in, uh, in like history class and they would be like these weird, dumb rip-offs of 90s indie movies that I would see. <laughs> and, um, yeah, you said Being George Washington George, yeah, was I, the I, first I, film you made. Yeah, a, be, a Being John Malkovich rip-off called Being George Washington <laughs> where my friend Spencer wanders across the uh, the school for a whole minute to an Amy Mann song, wanders into a cardboard box in the band room and goes in, warps into the body of George Washington uh, that I filmed in a dimly lit log cabin out at Argyle State Park in central Illinois. Uh, That was my filmmaking debut. Um, I think it sounds great. Right. (laughs) And so I wasn't thinking about this at the time, but looking back on it, I'm like, well, I mean, I'd obviously by that point seen things like being John Malkovich and Magnolia and stuff. And um, I knew that I wanted to evoke those like the filmmaking styles and the way the like how smooth everything would look especially with P.T. Anderson stuff so I would mm-hmm. try to like focus on camera angles and that kind of stuff and in that way I suppose um, in my feeble attempts at filmmaking I was also I recognize it picking up on things, things that would liked. yeah would the, I would I would like and would not like and um, that would become the basis for my ability to read films as a text sure um, which is which is cool looking back on it but uh yeah, um, I would say in terms of film criticism, I wouldn't really get into that in a formal sense until maybe halfway through college. I know I like uh, I volunteered at uh, IGN for a summer. Oh, I think cool. uh, they had started this like specifically sci-fi blog called Sci-Fi Brain. Okay, and uh, I started doing TV recaps for them like cool. when I was nineteen, which was yeah, it was fun, and uh, I actually for a brief time started a podcast with two of their editors, like two of whom were the other two are big deals now. Uh, (laughs) uh, Like Chris Carabot, I think is still at IGN, but like we all did this podcast together, but it was like web 1.0 podcast. It was that first wave of podcasting. That's what I was thinking. Even when you said TV recaps, I was like, wow, you know, that's so ubiquitous now. Right. At the time that's, it was a little thing. Like someone had to tell people how the second season of Stargate Atlantis was going. (laughs) And that person was going to be me. That was probably still pre TV. Uh, Oh yeah. 
absolutely. people needed to be kept I mean, up on. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I torrented those. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, sure, that sure. That was sure. also, the, yeah, before before the dreaded days of Pirate Bay going down. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was it was weird thinking about that, too, where I, where I was inadvertently in on the podcast boom before it, like, came back in the serial age, you know. Sure. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that, that sort of thing kept me... You know, had me start to uh, hone my writing skills and uh, start to become more observant, more engaged, like moment by moment in a thing and be like, oh, um, this thing is happening. Why is it happening? Do I like that it's happening? Does it make sense? Um, how does this thing look? How does the craft of what I'm seeing look and, and, and uh, how does that affect the storytelling? And uh, that was sort of the beginning, the feeble beginnings of what uh, would become a hobby that I hope to turn into a career. Sure. Um, uh, there really is something to the difference in watching something just purely for, I mm-hmm. don't know, entertainment value. Right. To turn, you know, the whole, the whole turn your brain off argument, which, sure. you know, I fully understand people who, who do that. And I, I, I get that everyone doesn't have the same like urge to engage on like that deep level. Cause I sure. mean, to it, to uh, to be completely honest, sometimes it can get exhausting to have your brain constantly on doing that. Um, but at this point, I can't turn it off. Um, and so what happens then is I have to learn to take the rough with the smooth. Where mm. it's like, oh, oh, I would prefer that that not happen, but I'm not going to let it ruin my enjoyment of this yes, thing. Yes, sure. Um, like I watch Doctor Who all the time and it has problems. But I'm not going to lie. I still... I still will like rewatch even the crappiest episodes, um, even I'm, though it has gotten this bad. It's gotten bad enough in the last couple of years that like there are specific episodes I will never ever watch again. Whoa! Uh, just because I I have not gotten through them awake, oh. I would always fall asleep, and they're so boring and they don't make any sense. Oh. Um, but I mean, I don't know. I tend to. I feel like, especially as I've grown as a film critic, I've become more forgiving and more generous. I tend to be like, okay, well, here are the things that I like about it. Um, But I will be honest about the things I don't, but I'm not going to do like a huge screed unless I really, really hate something. Um, And that hasn't happened for a while until very recently. Ooh. The Hitman's Bodyguard, Uh. which is, uh, I am... Furious to say, now in its second weekend as the number one movie in America. Uh, no. Yeah, it's it, in what? this. Apparently, this last weekend was the worst box office in uh, in American history I since was... September two thousand one. No. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, like, there are other good movies coming out. Well, that's what I was thinking when you said that. I was thinking that there wasn't really anything else out to right. uh, yeah nothing like hugely it. new and exciting i mean but the the problem is i mean we're in august we're in the fall yeah. uh, the summer blockbusters are gone uh the big oscar, oscar bait season. stuff isn't going to come for another month or so and so we're stuck with all the stuff that the studios had bought and had had made but don't really know what to do with um, which is why we have the Hitman's the goddamn hit. bodyguard. When I saw, I truly laughed aloud when I saw the title of that movie. So, <laughs> he's a hitman. He's a bodyguard. Will they learn to get along? Who gives a crap? Is it exactly what I think it is I, based on that? From what I can tell, I mean, I I wanted to give it an F uh, at Whoa. the website I write for at Consequence of Sound. Um, but my editor convinced me, like, no, we save that for stuff like 2016 Obama's America and stuff like that. Stuff that's like actually execrable. Mm. Like, and there's this like you know, it's at least it's two fun performers being being dragged through the mud. 
doing really really awful shtick and like um, just two two hours the movie is two hours long um, of just sheer boredom and the same one joke it's a family guy sketch stretched Uh. out over two hours and apparently this was this was one of those um, scripts that uh, there's something called the blacklist where it's yeah. like the big list of all the uh, the scripts that were not produced but everyone's talking about. Mm-hmm. And apparently the Hitman's Bodyguard was on the list no at some point. Way. But I think what happened was the script as it appeared on the blacklist was much more dramatic or was much more of an action mm. movie. Um, but they decided to, especially after Ryan Reynolds did Deadpool and his star came back then, like, oh, no, we're going to make it like an oh, edgy R-rated that's comedy. really frustrating that, yeah. some, that Deadpool influenced a movie that probably could have been better. 15-year-olds everywhere are rejoicing. Right. That's uh, really frustrating. Yeah. I, Michael Phillips said how exactly <laughs> how I felt about Deadpool, which was something to the effect of it's a... It's the most basic version of an R-rated superhero movie yeah. that you could possibly imagine. And, and, you know, he had some more deriding things to say about it, too. <laughs> yeah, don't doubt it. But that I didn't even uh, watch the whole thing, to be honest with you. But mm-hmm. that's the only way that I looked at it. Like, the, right. the jokes aren't very good, and they're, and they're mostly just to get dick jokes in there you know it's yeah. just like it's very basic. well it's not only the the dick jokes too but the thing i found most offensive was just uh it's sort of the the quintessential example of this referential humor we've got going yes. on right now where um it's very family guy to bring that back up yeah. and that like oh i'm going to reference a trope yeah and uh the the mere fact that you recognize the trope that I'm referencing makes it a joke. It's a joke, right? Yes. Um, uh, and also yes. to bring it back around to film criticism, that's a problem I have um, with a a particular like current strain of film criticism, which is um, a lot of stuff on YouTube is doing this kind of stuff, where it's uh, it's the TV tropes school of film criticism, where like mm. there's a website called TV Tropes, if you don't know, and it uh, it basically catalogs these story tropes and story conventions right. and like where they appear across various media. And uh, I feel like a lot of people will look at that, especially if they haven't been accustomed to other kinds of criticism and use that to make value judgments on, on a work based on, I guess, perceived predictability. We're like, Oh, I've seen that thing before. I don't like that thing. Um, but things like cinema sins, will absolutely do that all the time. And the the problem is this weird blending of comedy with film criticism has made it very difficult to um to criticize film critics uh because huh. like cuz uh if you see if you watch any given CinemaSins video, it's always the most obnoxious overlong um piece of crap imaginable where it uh it will just focus on like oh I've seen that thing before in other movies. Ding. Um, one current, one common refrain is like, oh, X, X machina. Like, um, or, you know, it'll be an excuse to make really juvenile, misogynistic jokes about women. Like, yeah. oh, this this hot actress isn't currently giving me a lap dance right now. Ding. Well, it's, it's, it's obnoxious <laughs> and unfunny. I've seen clips of things like that, and I've yeah. never been able to understand why people like watching them because they usually have so many views, and mm-hmm. I don't really understand the... It's just not my style of comedy in any way. Well, you know what it is? Because it it condescends to you to make you feel smart and in on the joke. Mm. Um, But the problem is, um, I mean, there's been been pushback against CinemaSins like the last few years. Um, There's a couple of really great 
uh, video essayists. Um, there's this guy, if you go to YouTube channel, uh, I believe it's just Bob Vids now. Um, he does an Everything Wrong With Everything Wrong With <laughs> uh, series where he'll just dissect the the things that they complain about, like in Mad Max Fury Road right. or, 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 or Captain America Civil War, that kind of stuff. And a, a lot of times what the CinemaSins guys do is they will make an argument in just extreme bad faith where they'll pretend that something is happening when it isn't ha- when it hasn't happened in the movie um, and set up this sort of straw man not to over not to use an overused cliche um, but and just to just to ding it and they're like no sure. like if you were paying attention this is why they're doing this yeah. or you know that they did this because you complained about the opposite thing earlier <laughs> so you're just trying to rack up these things to get the videos longer so that you get more ad revenue mm. um, so I it's was, a very cynical enterprise that's the other thing is I can't fathom I never watch things that are that long that aren't <laughs> television episodes like I just don't watch videos that are that long so yeah. to me if I click on I mean I I'll do it if it's like a really good video. Seven minutes or like ten minutes. Yeah, that's usually the ideal length for a YouTube video. Like, like if if you look at, I mean, one. I'm not. I think I'm just not a YouTuber in the way that it seems uh, like a lot of people are. uh, Maybe. I mean, I have it on the background a lot of times when I'm doing stuff. But like, I mean, I'll watch longer things, but things like uh, reviews and recaps and video essays and that kind of stuff. But the thing is, when people point out those criticisms of CinemaSins, also uh, just a a Sean and Jen are another great. YouTube channel that have uh, complaints about CinemaSins. Um, but whenever you point out those things, the, the usual defense is, oh, it's just jokes, man. Relax. And I'm like, here's the thing. <laughs> a, I, I do believe that they think they're telling jokes, but A, they're bad jokes. Right. B, there are a lot of shitheads out there who just think that they're, who use them in actual arguments about the film's quality. Yes. And like, no, that's not what how this is supposed to work. Yes. But the problem is you can't complain about that without seem, seeming like a killjoy. To these people. But that goes for comedy criticism in general, I would say. That's like the the argument against someone like uh, Daniel Tosh. That's right. like, he's just telling jokes, like he's just being funny. Yeah. So you can't like criticize his jokes. And it's like, no, we still can because yeah. part of the damage of this is that people will take these this in the wrong way, like right. whether he has those intentions or not, or whether any comedian has the intentions of actually like spreading ill will. Right. And comedians should be able to criticize bad comedy. Exactly. <laughs> like <laughs> not all comedy is created equal. Some of it's good, some of it's bad. And it's you have to be able to say that it's bad. It's not a reason to not criticize something. Right. And so what ends up happening for me is that I, I tend to hunch my shoulders up at that kind of criticism and uh, especially because it's really a lot of times it's really lame it's really basic it doesn't get into the meat of what I think criticism can be which is these really in-depth discussions of uh, what moments work what things don't what performances shine what don't what does this movie uh, mean what is um, what is it saying is it proper for this movie to come out at this point in time what does it say about our current cultural context that kind of stuff. Um, and I know to a certain extent that can seem like um, a hammer in search of nails. But <laughs> I just think that's, I just happen to think those conversations are more interesting than, oh, does this, does this kind of story device fall into hard tropes? Um, and how many dick jokes can I fill 80 minutes with, you know? Yeah, I tend to agree with you. Overall, I think that it's a... It's an oversimplification to just say that because something's been done before, you yeah. can't 
do it again. Literally every story has been told. Right. And right. so, and, and the, that's the thing. A lot of people will complain about, oh, there aren't any original movies anymore. I'm like, there are a lot of original movies coming out right now. You're just not seeing them. Yes. That's, that's a big issue. I yeah. agree with you because in if you look at the box office, like yeah. uh, Hitman's Bodyguard, unfortunately, yeah. like fits the bill, right? And so that's a, a, a frustrating thing for sure. Uh-huh. But at the same time, if you're not going to see things that are out that aren't, you know, Marvel movies, right? <laughs> then you're part of the problem. <laughs> exactly, and, and you know what? I'm a defender of those of, of a lot of those because I mean, I tend to find, especially the Marvel movies. There's at least a semblance of craftsmanship behind them. Yes, sure. Yes, they're designed to be all around crowd pleasing, but I really like that ever since the success of the Avengers, and they're like, okay, this works. We can mm-hmm. do this. They've been working on taking more chances, and they'll what they'll do is not just do superhero movies, but they'll do genre movies with superheroes in them. Like one of the best ones is uh, Winter Soldier, Winter Soldier. Yeah. which is just a '70s spy thriller complete with Robert Redford uh, that happens to have a guy who can throw a shield real good. Uh, Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy is uh, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, especially is just a '70s hangout movie, sure, with some CGI in it. Um, I, I agree with you that I think those are, are two of the best ones. Yeah. I get frustrated by things that don't feel like whole attempts at that. Like I think yeah. Ant Man was a failure if they were trying to make it into a comedy because I mean, it wasn't. I, I get what they were trying to go for. I mean, mm-hmm. I think it is one of the more middle of the road ones. I do think bits of it are more charming. That I'm sure some of his Paul Rudd and like the remnants Absolutely. of Edgar Wright. Absolutely. Um, but I mean, the the kernel of the idea is fun. It's like, what if we do a heist superhero movie? Sure. Um, but it just yeah yeah. I don't mean to say that people shouldn't see Marvel movies. I agree. Yeah. I agree with you that I think uh, you know Guardians of the Galaxy is one of my my favorite film experiences of the year so far. Like, right, right. It, yeah. It's just a great, really fun movie. Right. Uh, but I think you know. I just think if you are going to complain about a lack of X kind of movie, mm-hmm. you have to see. The ones that are being offered. <laughs> right. Well, because what happens is people go to the theater and they plop down 30 plus dollars for something that uh, that is a sure bet. That is sure. something that's familiar to them. They know the property or whatever. Of course. Um, but then that just means by definition you're not going out to see, you're not going out to take a risk and see the other stuff and sure. we're we're very blessed we live in a city with a lot of like art house theaters yeah, and that's things really like the music fair. box is is one of my favorite places of all time love it um and i mean so i love that century landmark yeah landmark, is, like. <laughs> yeah landmark century is also really good that's a really <laughs> yeah. nice place yeah um you yeah, know those two uh i haven't been to the arc light the new arc light oh, but that's supposed to be good i have it's really nice and uh-huh. it is a different specific film experience to watch three trailers and in. You know? Yeah, right, right, right. I know I've also been spoiled by that, by that too because the last couple oh, of years... Oh, you go to a bunch of screenings. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, I guess it's another thing. Like, um, I mean, I didn't, didn't start doing this in a really official capacity until a couple of years ago. I mean, I've been doing the podcast Alcohol Hollywood on my own since 2011 mm-hmm. um, and we've been doing all that kind of stuff and um, on occasion, there was like one summer in I think 2014 when uh, we had a deal worked out with Allied, which is the big marketing company in Chicago that handles like all the distribution, all the release stuff for all the movies that come through Chicago. And um, so I got to see some press screenings of that stuff kind of early. But 
uh, until then, I was using my movie pass. Oh, uh, nice. Did you hear my movie? Yeah, yeah. That, that was in the early AMC, days. AMC, right? Uh, AMC, anything that, basically anything that uh, took a Discover card. Oh, uh, You would cool. get this card, and you would pay 35 bucks a month, and you could go see as many movies as you wanted. I got in Which early. Which is a total deal. Like, I should have done stuff like that, because yeah. I'm sure I spent more money than that on movies some months. Right, exactly. Like, if you see more than three movies in a month, you're, you... It pays for itself. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the ostensible goal is is to get you to spend that much more on concessions <laughs> because BS, yeah. yeah right um but I would do a thing where like because there was a summer there was a year or two where we would do written I would do written columns on our website in addition cool. to the podcast I would call them fresh pours because I we have a boost thing there's a whole uh, thing yeah and so we, uh Julia and I um would go to the Regal City North. That was what yes. we, we lived in Bucktown then. Yes. Uh, we would go like every week. We, we, sometimes we would sneak in two, three movies. So we would see like After Earth and Now You See Me. Um, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Weirdly enough, After Earth, is just, it, it got a bad rap. Uh, I think uh, if it was directed by anyone else but then M. Night Shyamalan, it wouldn't have gotten mm, the bad rap that it deserved. Because sure. it's a thoroughly average, they're like effects-driven father and son survival movie. But everyone's like, oh, we as a culture have decided we don't like we don't like M Night Shyamalan. So, isn't that a weird thing that happens? Yeah, absolutely. That we just like, decide we don't like certain people and I, that we do like some other people. Right, exactly. <laughs> I I hate that, uh, especially because uh, you may be hard pressed to find a bigger Michael Bay apologist than me. Really? Than me. <laughs> um, for example, in 2013. So you took offense to both my uh, <laughs> being critical of Ratatouille and Transformers. Yeah. Uh, the, your I fully understood the Transformers thing. I do think you need to see Ratatouille in, in better circumstances. Because uh, that is a fine film sure. that we would have talked about even if we had discussed our other subject, food. <laughs> nice. Because um, I'm a bit of a gourmand myself. But... Uh, <laughs> I say Inside Out or Get Out. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just like I think Inside Out is one of the top three Pixar films. Oh, it's I great! It's Inside Out's fantastic. Incredible. I cried no less than three times during it's, Inside Out. It's it's just like the most poignant, most gut wrenching thing. Like right. What av- after this is very like uh, <laughs> uh, revealing, but and it but it does say something about film criticism. I think and like yeah. the way that you view movies that you like versus just right and and how they affect and influence you versus just like the sheer craftsmanship of a film. It kind of goes right. back to what you were saying that talking about what the cultural context of the film is and yeah. things like that. My fiance said to me after watching Inside Out, I wish I had seen that as a teenager because yeah. he feels like it would have like helped him understand his like yeah. emotions and the shit he was dealing oh, with. Oh, absolutely. Like, and I mean, yeah, the movies we watch growing up absolutely affect us on an emotional and psychological level. Like, I mean, I know in the late 90s, especially we rankled against the idea of, oh, you know, we shouldn't be cracking down on media um, consumption and whatnot because, you know, it doesn't affect us or like it's alarmist. I mean, because what happened was the big video game debate in mm. the wake of like school shootings and stuff. Mm. It's like we had we had to push back as a culture be like, no, 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 video games don't cause violence. And like they sure they don't. But if you're feeding yourself a steady diet of really violent media, then sure, your worldview may get skewed by that. I don't think the movie should be something that should be that should um, be punished for that. Sure. But I mean, just, you know, more responsible usage and consumption of them. Sure. But um, I don't know. But going back to your earlier point then um, about, you know, emotional and psychological stuff, uh, I, that's one way I like to really look at movies. It, um, there's a couple of great quotes by Roger Ebert that I tend to live by. 
as a, as a critic. Uh, one is that movies are machines that generate empathy. Mm, I've heard that before. That one's that one's one of my favorite. That's one of my like mission statements. It's like well, I, uh, that's if a movie can do that, if a movie can generate empathy in that way, mm. I find it incredibly rewarding. Totally uh, like, agree. We shouldn't be just be we we shouldn't just be watching movies about our own experiences. We should be watching movies about the experiences of others who are not like us, and uh, we can understand their perspective and see into their world a little bit, uh, and maybe bring this little world together. Uh, I totally agree with you. Together a little bit. Yeah. I um, mean, I think that's that the heart of the representation discussion. Yeah. And it's you know uptick in the last few years. Right. Like people complain about oh um, you know a, a you know a black Heimdall in Thor or uh, mm. you know that kind of stuff or the idea of a black Spider Man right. that kind of stuff. But it's it's just one of those things where you know it brings a different side of the table we don't need to see we don't need to have our heroes look like us yeah to empathize with them and relate to them and yeah. i think that that's something that we really need to start looking at as a culture because i guess i guess people are rank are, are sort of uh, resisting this idea of performative diversity maybe that's like that's the closest thing to like a sound argument anyone could have against these cries for diversity and sure. representation i i that was the that was a popular argument when Doctor Who announced a female doctor. Right. It's like, was oh, that the it was pandering, police. which is absurd to me. Right. So, like, for 13 other doctors, or however many, the, this is the thing. So, for 12 other doctors, were yeah. you pandering to dudes? Like, right. It, it just doesn't make And the answer is probably yes. But, yeah, uh, but still. But it's just like, it's just. Absurd. I, I mean, I. My ultimate response to those arguments is who gives a shit? Yeah. Like, if, sure, sure, the PC police are coming in. Is that really a huge deal? <laughs> yeah. How is that affecting your day to day life? Right. Like, but in, in exchange for, you know, offering these different ideas and perspectives and offering people who don't normally get to see their heroes on screen, yeah. Um, to, who uh, have them look like them. And, um, it's just I don't know I, that stuff is really valuable, and I don't I don't get those criticisms. But um, but the other quote from Ebert that I really take to as a critic is um, criticism shouldn't be about what a movie is about, but how it is about it. Oh, I like that. Where um, you know instead of rating the content or explicitly, but uh, talking about the craft. That's one thing that sometimes gets missed a lot in. Uh, in film criticism, especially like more popular populist film criticism, like mm -hmm. stuff on YouTube, like Chris Stuckman and Jeremy Johns, sure. that kind of stuff. People complaining about the say the content of a Marvel movie, whether it's stuck to its right, like oh, this isn't canon, right? Um, as opposed to talking about the film craft uh, and and you know the filmmaking itself. That's one thing I try to. Um, take care to do in my reviews whenever I try to do I try to make sure that I'm talking about the filmmaking first and foremost um, because that's the thing being that's the text to be analyzed the only way we can discern what messages what message is being said is by looking at the cinematography the performances the acting the editing the music that kind of stuff so if you if you're able to break it down into those component parts and see how each interact with the other that's where you get a really substantive, um, piece of criticism, uh, especially through your specific lens. Um, that's how I tend to look at it, at least in my for sure. I push up glasses sort of way. <laughs> I think there's a ton to be said for that because I think you're right that it separates 
film criticism from simply watching a film and expressing things about its content, you know? And and it makes me feel weird whenever I'm back home because, I mean, especially they they know that I'm the film guy. Sure. it's it's interesting having to modulate your language whenever mm. you're talking with film critics as opposed to non-film critics because yeah. I don't want to seem like a pretentious dick. Yeah, but I also sure. want to be like, oh, yeah, no, I really like, you know, insert popular movie that I also happen to think is good here. Right. That's, that's easily accessible on Netflix. Totally. So I feel like I'm not saying, oh, go watch the new Disney movie. Uh, or But you could also be like, oh, go see Moana. It's this Disney movie right. that is also good for X reasons. Yeah. Um, my mind for this year has been, you know what's good? Kong Skull Island. <laughs> really? I was mixed on Kong Skull Island. Oh, there, there, are things, there are things I liked and things I didn't like. Um, but I, I mean, I would probably just still say Wonder Woman, though. Yeah. Wonder Woman was great. Yeah. Um, it, feels, it feels so funny, like, seeing in the wake of Wonder Woman's success, Warner Brothers is kind of scrambling, be like, oh, we didn't expect this one to work out. Uh, yeah. Now we need to, like, make everything else like Wonder Woman. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, have you seen a trailer for that movie they're making about the guy who uh, made Wonder Woman? I'm going to see that tomorrow at a no press screening. Way. Yeah. What is it called again? The uh, women like behind Professor Marston and his ladies. Because I something. actually, yeah. Because uh, like, oh, what is it? Oh, yeah. Professor Marston and the Wonder Women. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, it's funny because I, um, in addition to writing for Consequence of Sound, and I've written like a few uh, freelance pieces elsewhere like uh, Crooked Marquee and my own podcast, I also have found myself over the summer writing for YouTube channels. <laughs> nice. Um, but like things <laughs> that awesome. more video essay stuff like Wisecrack and that kind of thing. Sure. Uh, but I mean, not explicitly them, but the uh, things in that genre. Um, and That's cool. One I got to write about was the origins of Wonder Woman and it's it, and her explicit ties to feminism throughout the legacy of her existence and the origin story of Wonder Woman is actually really interesting where it's this guy Professor Professor William Moulton Marston who created he helped invent the polygraph by the way Um, yeah so I think he developed the technique for detecting like changes in like and like systolic blood pressure or something like that that uh, helped develop the lie detector but also he was just some inventor and I guess fell into this job of making a female or making a superhero and his wife suggested why don't we make it a a female superhero so they both modeled it after their live-in girlfriend because turns out William Moulton Marston and his wife were in a polyamorous king-friendly relationship in the 1940s and 1930s so uh like that was such a really interesting tidbit that like they were it was Wonder Woman was already made by these people who were rejecting these traditional gender norms and ways of living and and all that stuff which I think is really fascinating so I'm looking forward to that movie Luke Evans I think is playing Marston the guy who was Gaston in the remake of Beauty and the Beast Luke Evans you said Luke Evans yeah no relation to Chris Uh, (laughs) but yeah he was the villain in Fast and Furious 6 he Mm. was Dracula in that first attempt to do a universal monster movie universe Dracula Untold Told. Yes. Um, fun fact: He is definitely he is definitely a closeted gay actor that was out when he was doing theater in Britain. But when he went over to America and became a star, they recloseted him. Wow. Yeah. That's real. Look it up. That's, that's a fact. That's a Luke Evans fact. That's cool. Luke, you can that's be whoever great. you want to be. We love you, no matter what. 
Um, bummer. Yeah, it is a super bummer. Thanks, Hollywood. Yeah, but he's got to have like sex appeal and stuff because like a right. out gay man couldn't have that, I guess. Right, exactly. <laughs> no one would want to do that. Um, <laughs> it's, it's dumb. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, look, so so that's one thing. That's one been that's been one big perk of the uh, of the whole film critic thing is the press screenings, which is a really interesting experience for me. Because in case you don't know, like when when before a movie comes out, a few days beforehand they will do screenings. Usually not just for press, but for press and like selected audiences. Like mm-hmm. you can win advance tickets to an advance screening, and that's I've been also to a number of those just yeah. through getting passes. Yeah. Right, exactly. And but then there's always like that section in the middle that's taped off. I yes. get to be in that secret club. Hell yeah, dude. Uh, so like you were talking about Michael Phillips, I'm like, yeah, Michael Phillips. I know that guy. <laughs> I see him in the. I told there was gonna be a lot of time. name dropping. Um, <laughs> so yeah, like I'll look over and be like, oh, there's Richard Roper. I never like get over that still. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, how would you? Right, yeah. exactly. But even then, there's like a bunch of film critics, some of whom have been on my show now, which is yeah, cool. Right? Yeah, it's really nice. It's a really I nice way to for us to get out with um, Adam Kempinar because yeah. I love the film sweating guys. Yeah, Adam yeah. Kempinar is great. Yeah, I got to have him on my show once yeah. for the Night of the Hunter. I hope he comes back on again. I, he seemed to have a good time. Yeah. And I got to talk to his co-host a few months later for our spinoff podcast on Tap because he just released a a book. Yes. About uh, movies and his their sort of connection to uh, Christianity, which yeah. is was really cool. To, movies to are prayer. Yeah. yeah. See, you know what I'm talking about. I'm a big spotting fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so am I. Absolutely so am I. Uh, I'm friends with the... Matt Singer on Facebook, too. Nice. So we talk uh, on occasion. That was the first podcast I ever listened to. Period. Yeah. That was, uh, I was, I was absorbing that, too. And honestly, like, now that you mentioned it, that was probably a vital component of my own film listening. Because yeah. I was, as I was starting to get into podcasts around 2005, 2006, I would listen to podcasts all the time, whether it was Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me or like the NPR morning news stuff. I would listen to like the five minute news burst mm. every morning before walking to class. I went to uh, like a small liberal arts college in Northeast Missouri, but like I lived a few minutes off campus there. And yeah, I would just like listen to podcasts all the time. And film spotting was one of them. Uh-huh. And look, thinking back on it now, I actually didn't it didn't even cross my mind until now. I was like, yeah, that was probably a huge influence on me in terms of the way I talk about films specifically. For sure, that's um, awesome. Yeah, where I, I guess I tend to be, uh, w- when I go back and listen to myself, as opposed to something more explicitly comedic like the Flop House or We Hate Movies. Sure, um, I my stuff is probably a little drier, but uh, <laughs> I try to still be relaxed and accessible, and that's that's one thing I want to make sure to do is I want to democratize film criticism and make it more accessible to people who aren't like, oh, I'm not a film professor, I'm not a film scholar. Um, Sure. Because I feel like everyone, there's such a universal thing. Everyone loves movies. And I feel like just if everyone is able to um, look at them in a more engaged way than they normally do, at least like, at least like better understand why they like or dislike a movie than they normally do, then like we've done our job. Um, That's a really good point. And that's really poignant because I was just talking to my fiance the other day about how I feel my parents have gotten more into movies and uh-huh. asking me for recommendations since I have. Like they right. because like it's a way to connect to you. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And they I like you am like the movie person in my family. So right. people look to me and ask, what should we be seeing? You know, I talked to my parents on my way home from or maybe the day after I saw um 
the big sick and was and yeah. and recommended it like immediately. I was just like, I think you guys would really love this, you right. know. But they that kind of movie would never have been on their radar before. Yeah. Like I recommended uh Hello My Name is Doris to my parents and they <laughs> loved it. And Yeah. It, I just don't think they would have seen like a Michael Showalter directed movie if right, I right. hadn't recommended it to them. Exactly. And I mean, that reminds me, I need to tell my dad to see Logan Lucky. Like that was, <laughs> yeah. I was that, that's the one I just remembered. Like, no, like there's no good movies coming out. Like why is Hitman's bodyguard number one movie in America Logan and Lucky. not I knew there was Steven Soderbergh's I triumphant it. return to filmmaking? I knew there was something else that I wanted to see. Yeah. Because my dad loves NASCAR it. and uh, I'm sure he would love that movie. There you go. It's one of my favorite. It's one of my favorites. I love it. Have you have you seen it? I haven't. Oh my I, god! I want to. That there's is... a scene referencing Game of Thrones that is maybe one of the funniest scenes I've seen in a movie all year. I highly, highly recommend. All right, Logan Lucky. All right, I especially want it to succeed because uh, Soderbergh was doing something interesting there, where he completely self-produced it and just got like a company to do the distribution. And I feel cool. like if if more more movies like that are successful then we can have this rush of auteur-driven stuff that doesn't have as many studio notes and executive notes. It can be a specific vision. Um, and he tried all Lord kinds of weird Taylor gimmicks. Lord could have actually made their own Star Wars movie. Right, exactly. <laughs> Instead of bringing Ron Howard, which God bless Ron Howard, but he is a journeyman of the highest order and he will just make a competent movie. That movie is going to be not great. It's not going to be great. And it bugs I, me out because I, I really see the, like Lord and Taylor. Yes, uh, Lord and Miller. Uh, Lord and Miller, excuse yeah. me. Lord and Taylor does sound familiar. It I sounds think like Lord a clothing Taylor company. I think Lord and Taylor is a clothing line, actually. Uh, Lord and Miller. Yeah. Well, I hope that they were clothed by Lord and Taylor. Yeah, uh, yeah. That would be I, nice. That would be the the right the right way the right way to, way to go if, if I were them right right uh, but, yeah I like their movies and yeah. was more excited to watch that story through if they their had, lens it's like the right. Edgar Wright thing like I was more excited to watch an Emmy movie that Edgar Wright made right than I was when it became this like overnoted right <laughs> it, it needs to thing. fit into the other notches yeah like the like going back to Marvel the ones that are the least successful the ones that are most just like a general superhero movie like Age of Ultron I didn't even see I, it I tried it, to watch it more than once and it, bores me. You spoke to falling asleep during Doctor Who episodes yeah. that you'll never revisit. That's how I feel about it. Well, Age I mean, in Doctor Who episodes are only 45 minutes long. That thing's like two and a half hours. And I fell asleep about 45 minutes in both times I tried to watch it and was like, nope, yeah. never gonna happen. Yeah. Well, and you know, we have more reasons to dislike Joss Whedon now. Oh, yeah, 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 um, yeah. So, that's a bummer. But there, you know, meet your heroes. You know, I, I, I was going to bring up a different thing and maybe I can tie these two things together because sure. I do think they're similar mm -hmm. and that is when we go into movies we have we take all these things with us yeah. we take Absolutely. I mean I guess it's a little easier for when you're seeing a press screening there hasn't been as much feedback yet but yeah. you still see and stuff and I do my best to try to like go in blind and, sure yeah. but as someone who, you know, does enjoy listening to film podcasting and criticism and reading yeah. sites and things like that, it's hard to go into a movie totally unencumbered right. by w how you think you're going to watch it. Right. When you add in things like, <laughs> when I watched Manchester by the Sea last year, <laughs> I was already angry at it. You know what I mean? Like, it's just... Were you wicked pissed at it? I, I yeah. was fucking wicked pissed at it. And, uh... It's hard to overcome stuff like that. It can be, yeah. Uh, it's that that whole art 
in the artist conversation is something sure. I have with myself. I have a I, I have it with myself a lot, especially because in addition to podcasting, I'm literally working on narrating a Woody Allen audiobook. Whoa, uh, like yeah. a, an audiobook about Woody Allen movies. Uh, so it's like okay, we're gonna talk about this stuff. But I mean, it helps that the book itself is not. Um, it's not produced by him. It's not a, it's about his movies, but is also very, very aware of like the controversies surrounding him. And mm-hmm. he's very honest about it, but it's one of those things where it's like, Oh man, like looking at this, like how much do you overlook the personal failings of the artist in behind it? Uh, when evaluating the merits of this thing, because I'm of two minds about it. Like one on the, on the one hand, it would be nice not to financially reward such behavior. Sure. Uh, with a career. But at the same time, one counter argument I sort of have is that like, it, there are also hundreds of other people who work on a movie, and I think unless yes. it's something that's explicitly auteur driven, like I think I feel much more willing to ignore a Woody Allen movie than something else, like maybe even like a Tom Cruise vehicle, because um, I like I like Tom Cruise as an actor. The Mummy aside, uh, uh, Mummy sucked. <laughs> I heard it was really bad. It's so bad. <laughs> well, because it's trying to be a Mummy movie and a Tom Cruise movie, and a Tom Cruise movie has with its, its own sort of set of connotations that don't gel. And uh, they tried to make Tom Cruise play a Bruce Campbell character, mm. and he did, so he's just standing around going, playing a weird face and going, "What? Yeah. What even is going on?" And like, that's not your style, Tom yeah. Cruise. But um, but things like that, where uh, you know, knowing the behind the scenes. That we're per- perpetuating, uh... right? Um, it's it's so tough to look at it in a vacuum, and I guess the question is for critics, especially like, do you let those outside factors in, or do you look at a movie in a vacuum and be like, oh, on its own merits, this should work? And I mean, I think there are arguments for both. Um, I honestly think not bringing that stuff in, that bringing that stuff in, is unavoidable. Sure. Uh, you can't uh, irresponsible. I would even say, yeah. To to and it's uh, it's a it's impossible Personally. to avoid it. No, I I agree. And uh, I mean, because everything means something in context. Everything sure. has a context, and you have to be cognizant of it. You can't just take something out of out of its context and be like, because otherwise, that's why people don't watch movies old, from like the earlier than the 1960s anymore. Like, oh, I don't like those old boring movies. I'm like, well, if you look at it, like. In the seventies, this is really cool, and right. um, or like old silent movies, like oh, why aren't they talking? Like, well, if you go back in history, they didn't have that technology yet, right? Um, and what happens is, what you the way I prefer to look at those movies is like seeing art thrive through limitation, uh, with these smaller budgets, with without the technology we have today. Sure, seeing things like you know. The awesome animatronic and prosthetic effects, creature effects we had in monster movies in the 70s and 80s. The Thing is still one of the greatest horror movies of all time, no matter what like CG monstrosities we can create now, because there's a tactile feeling to that uh, prosthetic stuff, even though in a way you know it's even less real than the CGI. uh, It's just, it still feels that there's that immediacy to it. Um, And so I think looking back at those other movies, um, or at least like looking at these movies in their social, historical, cultural contexts brings so much more to the movies than um, you would expect. And so even going into movies now in our current cultural landscape, I think is important to remember those things. Like, oh, you know, if there's a movie that like, you know, our perception of a Trump voter would like, it's maybe important to point that out because it mm. espouses these values and it reflects this culture or or it's a reaction to the Trump era, um, that kind of stuff. And sure, people... I know people will accuse critics of over-politicizing things. Sure. Like, well, you know what? 
everything is political. All art is political. Everything comes from a political stance. Even the assertion that your thing is not political is itself is a political, political. stance. Because <laughs> you're maintaining the status quo. Sure. Because you're not trying to rock the boat. Right. Um, and so we just have to be more comfortable with that. We have to be more comfortable with saying things are 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 shitty or good because of the context that they're in and not hmm. just take them out of their context. Yeah. I think that's a good approach for sure. Mm-hmm. And I'm with you that it's seemingly unavoidable. You can't, like you said yeah. before, you know, especially if you're going to be intellectually engaged with the story and what's being told and how it's being told. Right. Right. Uh, you can't just shut off all of the discerning <laughs> right. parts of your brain. Well, like imagine watching The Crow, not knowing that it's Brandon Lee's last movie, right. and he died on the set, and like seeing the shot where ostensibly that happened. Yeah. And I mean, I I mean, I'm not saying that that's the take they used, but just knowing that that moment that was the is scene. Yeah, that yeah. They, they they filmed it brings a different emotional response to it, and I, one that I think is very valuable. Sure. Um, Even, you know, something like uh, Mickey Rourke in The Wrestler. Right. Like, knowing... In the context of his career. Right. Even Robert Downey Jr. in Iron Man sure. reflects Robert Downey Jr.'s sure. own rise to fame. Like, because Tony Stark's flaws are reflected in Robert Downey Jr.'s own flaws. Yeah, right. Um, and so I think that that stuff is valuable. And even, outsta- even outside of the stuff we learn about the movie or the stars within it, um, our own experiences our own history heavily informs what we see and i don't think that's something we should run from yes um where you know if, if someone reacts to something negatively and you criticize them for bringing their own baggage into it we all do that and sure. that's what makes all of our voices different and that's valuable that's what a conversation is um one problem that a lot of people have with film critics and uh i mean uh, I was going to say Rotten Tomatoes, but I could get into the Rotten Tomatoes mm. model later. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I say being part of the problem. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's just the, those, it's the aggregate system that's part of the problem. But, sure. Um, I, I would love to like have that kind of <laughs> conversation for at least a minute. Cause oh, I'm for sure. sure. There are like, people who don't recognize that fallacy in, right. in its system. But uh, continue your thought oh, sorry, about like, yeah. e- emotion. and Where people treat like individual reviews like they're supposed to be the objective be-all, end-all mm. evaluation of whether a film is good or bad. Yes. And um, I would say that that's a flawed way to look at, to, to view your film criticism consumption. You need to be looking at a bunch of different voices whose tastes you find align with you or even read stuff that you disagree with. Yeah, um, sure. Where, like, if you complain that somebody was too mean to a film or, like, didn't say the good things that were in the film or something like that, like, imagine, like, the film criticism, the, the conversation around a film, um, the sentences are, are reviews, right? Like, where we're presenting an argument, someone else presents an argument, and there's a discussion to be had. But the entire discussion does, can't happen in the space of a review. Sure. That's our statement. That's our, like, mission statement. That's right. our reaction to the film. Um, it, it's only our voice. Sure. Um, it's our perspective. Uh, it's not an objective comparison of whether the film is good or bad. Right. You, we just have to, you just, you have to know that you have to not get angry at it. Be like, okay, well, I see this. I disagree with these points. And that's where the conversation starts. Uh huh. Um, like for example, and it's weird because people defend movies for the weirdest reasons or like, <laughs> sure. or even against the most milk toast reviews. Okay. Oh, so man. I reviewed a movie last year called free state of Jones. <laughs> uh, which was a Matthew McConaughey movie uh, about 
the southern this southern white guy who would fight with freed slaves against yes. the confederacy right yes it was boring yeah i gave it a c review thoroughly mixed review this is also shortly after I joined the uh, Chicago Independent Film Critics Circle, which mm. is uh, something I should uh, point out. I'm very happy for them. I'm very happy to be a part of their organization. They're a new organization. That's awesome. They focus a lot on because I mean the main the big boys for uh, for film criticism are the Chicago Film Critics Association. Those are the big boys, the Re- Ropers, your Keith Phipps's, what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's a smaller group of, of bloggers and podcasters and more diverse voices, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> CFCA, because mm. CFCA can be a bit of a boys club. Yeah. Um, but we have, you know, we have people in all various medias of all various identities. Uh, we place a distinct focus on women and people, people of color and trans people as critics and elevating their cultural voices. Uh, but anyway, uh, back to Free State of Jones. <laughs> uh, sh- shortly after I joined that, I posted that review. And apparently the guy in charge of the CIFCC forwarded me this email from this guy who had emailed him. Oh, my goodness. About me. Oh, and, my goodness. Uh, it was this huge screed against my... Free State of Jones review. Can can I just like take a second to find it because it's Please. hilarious. Please. Yeah, it's just one of those. It's it's weird how rabid people get about like their favorite films. I'm like, Free State of Jones is not a movie that deserves anyone's defense. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay, found it, found it, found it. Yes. All right. Uh, the <laughs> the uh, subject line is: You really claim this psychotic to be one of your own? Oh wow. Um. Clint Worthington is a sorry excuse for a critic. Please, can't we stop these five foot two guys with little man syndrome from being critics? We all know assholes like this enjoy nothing but being cynical, derogatory jerks. What a what a CPU try. Uh, what a, probably what a country where a demented little jackass like this can set back and comment on things he's clearly unqualified to do. Give us a break, you resentful little shit. Do you really think anybody gives a damn what you say? Your review of Free State of Jones completely missed the point of the movie. You used your space to denigrate McConaughey and def- and condemn him, and it just shows your jealousy of people far more talented than you'll ever be like the insect. You sawed-off sniveling shit. See a psychiatrist. Jesus. After reading many of your reviews, it's clear you have way too many personal psychosis towards successful, brilliant people to do the job you're doing. You remind me of young Hitler. What a complete joke you are, LOL. And you get paid to venture a psychosis on the world. Somebody needs to put you in your place. Your employers must be complete looney tunes to allow you to write such gibberish. Oh my God. <laughs> my biggest critique of this is that he never talked about what he didn't like about your review yeah <laughs> he or she i suppose i i get the impression that he is not too tall himself that's like i am five insane. eight sir <laughs> that, i'm five two so like i right took a little you bit sniveling of little shit that, that uh, is the Crazy. I've never been called Hitler before. I kind of feel yeah. honored. He did like he did the cardinal he, Godwin's I'm, law I'm on going page one. Out of my way to be hyperbolic about this thing, <laughs> right? Jesus. In comparing you to Hitler, I just I couldn't I couldn't muster up any sort of like fear or anger no. or resentment. Like this is just hilarious. No, that's the most absurd thing I've ever heard. Right? <laughs> oh man. 
That's but, crazy. It's just like he didn't even he didn't email it to me. He emailed it to the guy who had just let me into our little circle of bloggers. Like really like I absurd. work for him. Like he has the power to fire me. Right. Man, that's absurd. Right? I uh, I guess <laughs> So anyway, just in case you think film critics have it easy, think again. <laughs> it just shows a clear to me, lack of understanding of what criticism is yeah. and should be. Right. I say, mean, it's no getting death threats by not giving The Dark Knight Rise as a glowing review, but I think there's like a book now about like how virulent Batman fans are about like how protective they are of their thing to the point of being of so violent towards like, well, I mean, also that lapsed into real violence oh yeah you know one of the most violent things that's ever happened in a movie theater right right uh damn yeah so yeah a lot of people get so that this is this to me is why it is ever more important to um to foster these ideas of convert of film criticism as conversation uh, uh about being able to look at these things sort of dispassionately and uh not take not like sort of not define ourselves by what media we consume. Like, and I say this sort of contradictorily as a yeah, film critic. Yeah, um, sure. But I mean, that's kind of one of the pitfalls of like the rise of nerd culture now is that we there's so much there's so many people who identify as nerds and like the nerd identity is sort of becoming commodified. Sure. And we're increasing like people increasingly define themselves as like DC fans or Marvel fans yeah. to the point where like there's like wars and like we don't have to do this no. these are just movies we watch guys yes. like we don't have to we don't have to fight why are mommy and daddy fighting yeah um, <laughs> it's okay that you like Deadpool and I yeah it's a dangerous outlook to have because otherwise we can't have conversations but I guess that's happening on a larger scale throughout this country but I digress uh, it's a very good point I guess right. from my perspective if I were m- a film critic, it would be very difficult for me to uh, go into films that I knew I already didn't have as much of a love for that genre yeah. Yeah. or or whatever that thing is and try to be as... Uh, inner, you know, engage. Look with... at it a little more uh, fairly, I suppose. Right. I, I totally have that problem, too. I mean, and... I've, I will freely admit to going into movies expecting to hate them, um, but sometimes I am surprised. Um, for example, uh, 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 last year I think I saw a movie called Miracles from Heaven, which was uh, which was a Christian movie. And I mean, I'm on record. I've actually written pieces about why, how Christian movies sort of fail their audiences. Like they're not good Christian movies. They're not even movie. They're not good movies. Like sure. Christians deserve better movies than this. Sure. Than the God's not dead yeah, and like heaven Tyler is Perry for real. Thing, right? Yeah. A little Tyler Perry thing, but I also didn't feel qualified to weigh in on that particular thing. Cause there's sure. an aspect of culture that uh, sure. appreciates that. And yeah. they feel represented. I, I, sure. Sure. I totally get that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if it's like, I listen to the read and that uh-huh. is a conversation that they come back to a lot is yeah. that they're very frustrated by one of the biggest representations of black culture in film right. is a very problematic one for them. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. And yeah, I have many issues with those movies. Yeah, um, sure. But, but uh, anyway, we but, digress. Right. But Miracles from Heaven um, was a movie about Jennifer Garner. It was based, it was another one of those ones that was based on a true story yeah. about like this little girl who was having all these medical problems and like, you know, yeah. medical science wasn't helping. But then she falls out of a tree and sees God and uh, suddenly she's healed. Um, and so I went in with that, with my existing knowledge of Christian movies and, and whatnot, very cynically. I'm like, oh, this isn't going to be, this is going to be, this is a Jennifer Garner 
I think it was in the middle of her divorce with Ben Affleck. And yeah. uh, really needs some money and the Capital One checks weren't cutting it. <laughs> um, well, it's also her, you can tell she's like cultivating this wholesome girl persona, this like all American sure. persona. Yeah. Um, but I ended up like not hating it nearly as much as I thought <laughs> it was because it was, it, it felt it felt honest. It felt like it wasn't until the end. It didn't feel like it was explicitly proselytizing to me. And it was just about this woman's crisis of faith where like she was a very deeply Christian woman. Yeah. Um, she kept praying and she, it was also like this tale of, of motherhood and like what happens to a mother when something is wrong with your daughter and you have no idea what it is and nothing you do is helping. Like, how do you react to sure. that? And she puts in a good performance. Um, it's filmed a little bit better than most of these Christian movies. And, yeah, I ended up like surprisingly enjoying it. I'm like, you know what? This is actually not bad because it uses its Christianity. It uses the religious element as an element of the plot and and about that ambiguity, you know, it explores that without explicitly proselytizing to the audience. That's and, interesting. Uh, and also it doesn't use it as a vehicle to like spout really regressive Republican talking points sure. about like prayer in schools and yeah. abortion and that kind of stuff. Right. So um you know, it's it's not trying to be too stormfronty. It's not the seven hundred uh, club, right? Exactly. It's just a very honest, straightforward thing about faith and how it is practiced and how it relates to your individual life and your mm-hmm. family. Um, and so, in that respect, I went into this movie uh, not expecting to like it, and I did. And I think that's why empathy is so important when you go into a movie as well and like be like, oh, okay, how how is this? How is the audience for this movie going to receive this? And sure. like, and while also being honest about like my own assessment of what it is, that's interesting. So it kind of becomes a twofold thing where you're not yeah. necessarily just interacting with it via your own experience. enjoyment of or experience yeah. with the movie, but you kind of have to view it through an audience that may be more into it than you are. Of course, of course. And I mean, in the end, the buck falls with me. The in the end, my review is my perspective, but. Um, it's just one of those things where like, okay, well, what will the people who read this want to hear about the movie? Right. And so I have to be honest about that as well. Right. Uh, I mean, even with like Hitman's Bodyguard, I'm like, if you want to whittle away two hours of your life and you like Ryan Reynolds, if you like hearing Samuel Jackson say motherfucker a lot because they wrote that into the script a lot. No kidding. Yeah. Oh, it's. It, I think I said in the review that it was like they knew they wrote Samuel Jackson into this role, but hadn't seen any roles of his beyond snakes on the plane. <laughs> like he's he's an, he's one of the greatest actors of his generation, and they have him just be this sleazy. Uh, the sleazy action hero who relies on the actor memes outside of that role mm. too much. Um, but anyway, but enough about <laughs> Hitman's Bodyguard. It makes me so mad that that movie is so successful. Um, and I know a lot of other re- reviewers who are like, eh, it's just boring. Yeah. I'm like, no. You know what? That's the biggest sin of a movie. Yeah. Like, a movie can be bad and interesting. A movie can be great and inter- interesting. Tedium is something I will not abide. Yeah. Like, uh, mediocrity is something that I... I just be interesting. Do something. Sure. Do something new. Yeah. Um, and they didn't. Do you, is that part of your Michael Bay apology? <laughs> is that he's at least interesting? Uh, yeah. I mean, in the bad movies he does, he's interesting. But I also think that he, I think that he <laughs> is critiquing a lot of the things that people think he's endorsing. Mm-hmm. I think it's, a, I take a very oppositional outlook. Like if uh, It's funny. Like, I'll, I'll send you the link sometime. I was part of a thread on a forum, not a huge part, but I got to witness it as it unfolded. This huge thread going through 
all the Transformers movies in detail, and they're like, "How I really kind of like them." This person and uh, their arguments made a lot of sense from an oppositional point of view. Where like you slowly, especially as these movies have gone on, where you explicitly see more and more that Optimus Prime is the villain. He's this uh, like, he's this fanatical cultist who. Uh, and in the second and third movies, he's literally working with the U.S. government to perform extrajudicial terror, like anti-terror wow. out, like uh, operations and whatnot. Like, and uh, especially with regards to the first Transformers, Sam Witwicky is supposed to be annoying. He is this obnoxious man-child who won't stop playing with his toys and grow up. Yeah, and that makes it. They make it a lot clearer in the third movie, I think, when like. Even the back, even the behind-the-scenes stuff of Megan Fox quitting and having to like bring in a lookalike mm. works in the fabric of the movie, in the subtext of the movie. Where like even even um, Megan Fox's character in the movies got sick of Sam's shit, and so he like has this replacement girlfriend, and he's bitter that he can't get a job after saving the world twice, mm. and he's just this bitter entitled brat. And I mean, sure. I to a certain extent, it it works more than it doesn't for me. It's not perfect. But it's great. And I think the thing that really turned it around is I really recommend you see the movie Pain and Gain. Oh, I, movie, Josh movie, Larson loved Pain and Gain. Right? It's one of, it's, <laughs> it's his it. Fargo. It's Michael Bay's Fargo. Um, that year, I think my two Michael favorite movies. Bay's Fargo. It is. All right. It is. It's it's a crime comedy about, about, about a bunch of idiots trying to commit this huge conspiracy and uh, what that says about their values, and and it has, I th- I think it honestly has a lot to say about the bold, uh, about the big brassy machismo of American mm-hmm. culture, and like, and our obsession with fitness, and uh, you know, and money, and success, and that kind of stuff. And so, in that respect, Michael Bay's Urah style works perfectly for it because you're sure. seeing, because you're seeing character. You're following characters who have seen too many Michael Bay movies, right? That's basically my <laughs> argument for That's it. That's interesting. Yeah. That's really It's Michael Bay take. sort of reflecting on his own style yeah. and also bringing the hammer down on you at the end. Like, oh, you had a lot of fun with this big brassy thing. Like, oh, well, these are real people and some of them died. Yeah. How, how do you feel about right. that? So there's an implication of the audience that happens in Pain Game that I think is a lot smarter than people give him credit for. All right. All right. So. Do you feel like you have to do a similar thing where if you watch a film like Miracles from heaven and you're like uh-huh. you know this worked for me on this level but uh, the audience it's more intended for will probably enjoy it more yeah, you feel yeah. like you have to do the same thing with like action and sci-fi where you're like this is great in my opinion but uh-huh. it- I think uh, I think for those I don't have to do that mental gymnastics because I am their audience and so I can feel more comfortable being like okay this didn't work for me this didn't work for me I guess where I'm coming from is like does the other side of the coin work too where oh. I'm not someone who enjoys action films okay. as much so seeing if like other people who don't normally enjoy those right genres like would this movie still work for me um I I will say that I probably don't do it as much as I should yeah and maybe that's it's I mean that's like and that's the thing I'm just, just like an interesting thing well no of course and that's something that like, especially as a in anyone's profession and or in, or in any, anything anyone's passionate about, you're always looking to improve. And that's, mm-hmm. that's one thing, like whenever I submit a new review, I'm like any feedback, like any, anything I use, let's, the more I write, the more like repeated phrases I find, the more I use, I use semicolons way too much. Mm. I use hyphens <laughs> way too much. I need to just learn to let two sentences be two sentences I'm, without combining them into one I've super sentence. I've wrote on writer as well. Oh for yeah. Sure, yeah. Mm, so am I. <laughs> so those things like that, like I'm always looking for feedback and for improvement. I'm always, I'm not afraid to like be like, okay, this thing I wrote was bad. Yeah, I need to do better. 
I need to be more cognizant of this thing. And that, that happens especially way more with the podcast as well. I'm always trying to improve stuff, trying to sure. improve the production quality, trying to improve things like uh, cotton mouth and speaking too close to the mic and uh, using all kinds of verbal filler and stammery stuff. Uh-huh. I'm just trying to like do better. <laughs> Aren't we all? I know. Uh, We're all just trying to make it this weary world. (laughs) I was going to ask if you had specifically any favorite film critics or sites or or things like that. I'm actually really excited to answer this question. Uh, First and foremost, I am going to uh, I'm going to name drop a friend of mine, uh, Scout Afoya. He he writes for a bunch of places, but uh, the thing I know him for the most is this video essay series on RogerEbert.com. He puts out a new episode every month called The Unloved. And uh, his whole modus operandi there is to find movies that either he has a personal connection to or he just thinks is really like unsung. Love it. Um, I knew that I was going to... I knew I was going to be really on his wavelength when the first two episodes he ever did were for Alien 3. <laughs> And John Carter, two movies. John Carter, especially, I'm a huge apologist for. The marketing really tanked that movie. Sure. No one went to see it. And yes. Like, you know what? This is actually really good. Okay. Michael Giacchino, like. I never saw it, oh, but I know. It's great. I know that the general consensus was that it got poorly no marketed and, and a little abandoned. Yeah, yeah. Well, because that's another thing. Like in this age of remakes, what's happening now is that we are remaking things that were already influenced a bunch of other stuff sure. so by the time we get around to remake the remaking the actual thing it looks like a repeat of these other things yeah like um, right john carter was you know edgar rice burroughs thing that uh, inspired everything from superman to star wars and so when john carter comes out it's like oh We've this seen is that guy. this is the arena fight from attack of the clones I'm like no attack of the clones got it from john carter yeah that's um, funny that's I think really that funny. happened earlier this year with Valerian, right? Uh, which I haven't seen, but I really want to. I've that heard was another that about Fren- Valerian. Yeah, French comic book that also inspired Star Wars. Uh, Ghost in the Shell, weirdly enough, I mean, it, ha- it has its own significant problems independent of that, but sure. one of its other problems was by the time the Ghost in the Shell remake came out, it, it had already it had influenced everything from the... So much. So you, you just felt like you were watching The Matrix again. Interesting. Um, and also RoboCop, that's another problem. Ghost in the Shell turns the original Ghost in the Shell movie into RoboCop. Mm. Like... It's it's much less philosophical and it's just about a robot on the rampage, right? And finds out that the company is the evil company's betrayed her, right? Um, but anyway, so Scout Tafoya, he has these really wonderful considered things, and like I was a big fan of him before I even met him or talked to him on Facebook, but now like we're we're good friends. And that's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's great. Like that's a one case in which you should meet your heroes. Right. And he's great. He's yeah. so wonderfully affable and he's hilarious. And so I highly recommend uh, you you check him out. Sure. Um, but in terms of other um, film critics. Uh, I'm still a huge fan of Nathan Rabin. Mm-hmm. Uh, another another name drop of like someone I've befriended now. Aww. He's been on the show a few times. Uh, but he lives out. He used to live in Chicago, but now he lives uh, out near Atlanta. Um, and he runs his own website, NathanRabin.com, which is just uh, his own self-funded Patreon website. Because cool. I think in his own words, he's like, I, I want to go somewhere where no one can fire me. Because uh, he yeah. he had some unfortunate experiences uh, in the past, but uh, but that seems to be doing well. His Patreon is thriving. Like That's he's putting awesome. out a lot of con- he's putting out, putting out the content he wants to do. I think he's currently in the middle of a song by song breakdown of everything in Weird Al's career. Ha! Because uh, he wrote awesome. Weird Al the book also. So like, cool. uh, I just love him for you know he's he's an incredible writer. Uh, he's so smart, so witty, and he's he focuses on these subcultures that often get ignored. Like he's a huge proponent of the insane clown posse <laughs> as like this. Surprisingly progressive force. Yeah. Um, 
he he has a book, uh, You Don't Know Me But You Don't Like Me, that's about both the fish and ICP subcultures that he, he looks at from a very anthropological yet personal perspective sure. that I really, really enjoy. Um, so those two were fantastic. Uh, there's a lot of other local critics I could name. Jacob Aller, uh, Michael Snydell. Um, uh, one of my favorite podcasts is also local, part of the Film Spotting family, The Next Picture Show. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a bunch of critics that I love. Keith Phipps, who's also been on my show a few times. Nice. Uh, Tasha Robinson. It, well, it, it helps that Keith is like basically a neighbor. We're both like he... Uh, we're both in sort of the Andersonville area, That's so like great. he can just drive over in five minutes and hang out. Uh, we'll watch Blazing Saddles together and talk about it. That's so awesome. yeah, Keith Phipps, Tasha Robinson, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky, all uh-huh. sort of other uh, orphans from the Dissolve, which was another great film that's website right. that was gone way too soon. That's right. Um, but so that's that's another uh, film podcast I film podcast that I love where they. Their gimmick is fascinating where they take a recent release and tie it into the context of another older release. Right. Going back to our point about how context is important. Yeah. Um, where they'll talk about. I should get into that show because I hear them on film spotting all the time, but I've never really listened yeah, no, to it's, it. Yeah, no, it's great. Uh, they got me through my root canal a few weeks ago, so that was <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, it's just, it, there's there's a lot of great critics out there. But I mean, and those are just my personal, pers- personal um, you know, oh, Alonzo Duraldi. Uh, who's an LA critic is also great. He's another uh, friend of mine. He's he's really if you want to know Christmas movies, he's your guy. Nice. He wrote a great book called Have Yourself a Movie Little Christmas. Nice. And uh, another podcast I watch is from another uh, I listen to ears. <laughs> I was thinking uh, I was like, oh, it's called be uh, Canceled Too Soon, which is more of a TV podcast, but it's a it's a really fun podcast run by a couple of other LA film critics, uh, William Bibiani and Whitney Seibold, who are great, wonderful, enthusiastic, geeky guys. And uh, their gimmick is for that show is to talk about a different TV show every week that lasted one season or less. Yeah. So, yeah, they'll talk about Smash, I think, or uh, that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Um, but it's really, really fun. It's, one, it's a regular haunt of mine. But all those people are great. Um, and even then, just independent of my recommendations, it's just great to just go out, scroll down Rotten Tomatoes, ignore the percentage point. It is not an objective metric of, wh- of how right. good the film is. Right. Um, go go down, like look through the movies, uh, go through the movie reviews that you've seen. Um, find critics whose voices you like and just follow them and you'll be able to get a good cross-section. Do multiple voices. Yeah. Get a good cross-section of, ev- of everything and, um, you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, have that conversation. Have the conversation. <laughs> and um, oh, God, what else? Oh, well, yeah, we should talk about Rotten Tomatoes while we're here. Right. Uh, I think this is a conversation that we've, a lot of people have had for the last few years. People sort of misrepresent what the percentage means. Yes. Or uh, where, you know, if enough people give a movie a middling but good review, it'll be like, oh, 83, 85% of the tomato meter. Yes. Um, but if it's something that's really divisive, like only God for only God forgives, for example, like people either love or hate that movie, but it's got like 30% on Rotten Tomatoes. Right. Because, uh, but one is not better than the other. Yes. It just, yeah. And that's what a lot of people who misrepresent that percentage point gets, get hung up on. I think the most recent movie, I could be mistaken, but I believe the most recent movie I saw where I felt like it suffered from that was Dunkirk because yeah. I feel like Dunkirk was a good movie. Yeah. Most people gave it like a pretty a good C review. C plus B minus yeah. maybe. And but no I don't 
I could be mistaken, but I don't think anyone was really giving it glowing like top ten ninety five reviews. Uh-huh. But on Rotten Tomatoes, it has some mid to high ninety percent right fresh right because it's not necessarily a movie people would watch and pan. Right. So there's so few really negative reviews. I think that's the movie I'm thinking of that I saw it and I was yeah. like. See, this doesn't need a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. Right, right. And I think that speaks to a larger general problem about the idea of ranking or quantifying movies in this right. way. Or like pitting them against each other with numbers. Which, cause it's, because films, film is such a subjective experience. We've been talking all hour about how we bring our own stuff into it and all the cultural context and whatnot. So different movies mean different things to different people. And I think we should just let that be that way. I tend to, you know, sort of resist the idea of ranking movies whenever I have, unless I have to, unless I'm going to get paid for it. Sure. Um, like, for example, I'm I'm currently pitching to anyone who's interested. I want to do a a ranking of all now 100 of Takashi Miike's movies because he's Whoa. putting out his 100th movie at the Chicago International Film Fest this fall. And that reminded me, I'm like, oh, he's at 100. This would be the perfect time to go through all of them. I've seen maybe five. Yeah. I will need some help with it, but I'm pitching that one aggressively. That's but awesome. independent of that, I just don't think we should put too much stock in rankings or numbers. Sure. Let movies, let your opinion of the movie be your opinion of the movie. Let others have their opinion and duke it out in the realm of conversation. Um, but there's no objective metric for like these things. Yes, I agree. And I think it's, uh, yeah, Rotten Tomatoes has certainly contributed to that. And isn't yeah. Rotten Tomatoes owned by IMDb or vice versa? Something so like that. It, so, oh, no, they're, weren't, they're owned by Warner Brothers, which was funny whenever uh, Batman v Superman and Suicide Squad got sort of panned. And like there was that big petition of like, like shut down Rotten Tomatoes. Like yeah, sure. the The company that owns the movie is that upset. Yeah. That, that owns the website is going to be that upset that their movie didn't do well. Sure. Um, like you know what you're asking. It's the, <laughs> it's that weird. And again, like I think that's why we need to increase things like film literacy and sure. and the our ability to have these conversations. Um, I mean, and our ability to even tolerate contrarian opinions unless they're like horribly offensive or something. Like uh, another critic that I tend to read a lot even though I disagree with him wholeheartedly, is Armand White. <sighs> Armand White, the notorious troll. Right. Uh, a lot of people call him a troll, call him a hack. Um, I do think his style and his attitude have deteriorated over the years mm-hmm. as he has become more and more ostracized because now he's just this, at, the, at this neoconservative site, like, the National Review. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, how? where else are you going to find such an eloquent... Um, defense or defense of like Resident Evil Retribution or <laughs> takedown of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 from a gay black Republican writing for a conservative website and like uh, I just I fully regardless of whether or not I agree with his opinions on movies I I understand that he I believe that he believes those opinions and he conveys them in such a wonderful erudite way that I'm like you know what? I think you're full of shit, but uh, I see where you're coming I'm from. Still listening. It's still a good piece of film writing, yeah. you know. Um, and I think we should be able to like ag- admit that. I mean, less so invite him to critics' dinners where he calls Steve McQueen horrible things and has him kicked out. Um, that's not cool. But as a piece of writing, I just I don't know. I guess I just rankle against the the establishment. I guess in that way, I'm just like you know you don't have to like I don't have to think that every I don't. I don't have to have everyone else like the movies I like. Sure. 
I, you know, I feel like it's my, that's my thing. And it would be hypocritical to dismiss any dissenting voice. Right. Cause then why should opinion. people take seriously what I have to say? Right. Of course. Um, yeah. And again, it's all part of a larger conversation. It's not the final word. So I think all of this kind of ties nicely into this last question or thought. Yeah. Uh, and we can just kind of tie a bow on the conversation. Sure. How do you feel like your love of film criticism has influenced you creatively and kind of your life in general? I know it's a creative endeavor. Right, right. So I but guess, it's different. Yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah, it's, it's influenced me in a lot of ways. It's more or less it's influenced the way I think about the world. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's really primed my my ability for critical thinking and just anal- like, and, and analyzing the things around me, even outside of media, um, things like politics, interpersonal relationships. Um, not that I'm like turning on my critic brain, but right. it just it it allows me the the tools to observe more about the world around me than I would otherwise if I'm just kind of skirt like sailing through it passively. Yeah. It allows me to be a more active presence in my life and my creative endeavors and that kind of thing. And uh, just I just you know. It's just, it's the ever ending search. It's the never ending search for knowledge, and uh, I think that's always a good, valuable thing. We should strive to be more literate and more educated in all fields, even just the ones you're passionate about. And so things like, um, I mean, just to circle back around one huge influence I totally forgot to mention is Criterion, mm, the Criterion Collection. Like, sure. uh, beginning with college, uh, I would start to the the school library had all of it to date on sale. And so I would take a DVD burner and like burn all of them. And I would just go through number by number by number. And just uh, Criterion is one of, still one of my favorite film companies. I now, at least uh, now that I can actually pay for things, I wait for the sale and do huge binges. I have a huge Criterion wall, like shelf. I'm trying, still trying to go through all of those. I have a huge backlog of that. I still have like 20 Zatoichi movies to watch. (laughs) Right. Well, and just, you know, the, just the care they take in preserving these movies that they think have this specific influence, even things I don't agree with. Like I'll probably never buy tiny furniture. Yeah, that's fair. I guess I get, I mean, and I get the market forces at play too, where you need to get more populist um, indie movies in order to like pay for the more obscure shit. Sure. But I mean, that also goes back to a person's uh, yeah. experience with a film because yeah. one of the first movies I saw at the music box and oh, I had yeah. just moved here from graduating from college right, and right. I was like, dude, this is it. I think Lena Dunham gets me. And yeah. then like, you know, as, thing, my fiance loves that movie too so I'm not one to begrudge. Yeah. yeah. And I like and I, girls. And I won't necessarily, uh, I, I, I'm yeah. not a, uh, a Lena Dunham apologist in right. practice but I do like the things that she makes. You right. know what I mean? And Going back to art and artist. Yes, yeah. it's it's very art and artist with her. So I'm not trying to like come right. out as like this huge stand or anything. But uh, I won't even attempt to disagree with you that it probably doesn't belong among Criterion conversations. Yeah, among like Seven Samurai. Right, kind of right. But for That's some a, of the other things they bring in, eh, right, yeah. and and just the the level of care, like it's basically like a little film school in a box, right? right? Where it's it's pretty much like the almost the final word on what this thing brought to the table yeah. or how it was made. Because, I mean, you, you get that bevy of special features. You get all the commentaries. Uh, they're one of the only film companies I know 
that have commentaries from film scholars, not just the people who made it. Cool. Those are the most interesting to me. Like if you go get the Godzilla criteria. Like dramaturgy like, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, or like, you know, like people who've written books on the movie talking cool. about like, oh, why this moment's important or what happened behind the scenes in this moment. Cool. Uh, yeah, like one of my favorites is the, there are two commentaries on the Godzilla Blu-ray from Criterion um, from for both versions of the movie of Godzilla and then Godzilla King of the Monsters which was the American version that they oh. cut a bunch of Raymond Burr footage in oh. this guy does I forget his name but he just two of the best commentaries I've ever seen I've ever heard they're they're witty they're informative um, they're, I just I feel like I learn so much more about the movie and pick up things that I wouldn't normally pick up on cool. and so Especially seeing that in such an early age, because I also was part of the, the president of the filmmakers club student organization there. <laughs> that that was sort of my my education, my film education, and uh, I would see, I would read the essays, I would read, I would listen to the commentaries, and just understand more comprehensively why this movie is important or good. Even if, even regardless of whether I liked it or not, I still don't know whether I actually like Solaris or if I just respect it. Sure. Um, I definitely have movies like that. Right. But I mean, I even think that's valuable. I don't have to just watch movies I like. Um, You can sort of call that eating your cultural vegetables if you want. Yeah. But um, I just think that's, that's something that's valuable. Like go see a movie you wouldn't normally see, um, see something that's influential, even if you aren't going to like, necessarily be thrilled by it on a film level but if it makes you feel something if it makes you react in some way or even if it makes you go huh so that's why they liked it at the time or why you know why it's part of this person's body of work um just those kinds of critical tools um whether it's curated things or online film criticism or written film criticism or even the better parts of podcast and video film criticism uh i think that's all really valuable stuff not just for your understanding of film but the honing of your own critical tools in life. I think that's a wonderful response to the question. And I think it's really intuitive to, Uh to kind of, we view film through the lens of the world that we've lived in, but it's also cool that you feel like you can view the world (laughs) through the lens that film watching has given you. Right. Cause I don't, I don't expect films to tell, to remind me of how I live. I expect films or I hope that films tell me about how other people live. Cool. Um, and that's always informative to me. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me on. This is fantastic. I, was, I say thanks for coming on because I'm usually in host mode. <laughs> sure. But thank you for having me on. This <laughs> is wonderful. So this funny. is so great. I had a great time. Yeah. And I knew it. So uh, I, anytime I get to talk about film in general is fun yeah. for me. So I'm glad that I had someone who likes to talk about it for absolutely. potentially a living. Anytime. <laughs> and anytime you want to come on Alcoholic, you're more than welcome. I would love to. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love you, man. I mean that. Yeah. I love you. This has been a Nerdalogs production. If you'd like to help make more things like this, please visit patreon.com slash nerdalogs to donate today. And go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff. Thanks for being awesome. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.